And Father, we pray that Your will will be done. Keep the evil one far from us, Lord. Help us to grow as Your people. We pray that Your will may be done in our lives. And Father, we know that it's easy to approve of things that we already are doing that are right. But help us, Lord, to also see what You would have us to do that might be beyond what we're doing. And Father, whenever we study Your Word, we pray that Your will can challenge us and that we might have humble hearts and we might be obedient and submissive to Your desires in our life. Father, we pray that all the glory and and all the honor be given to You on account of how Your people live. Be with us, Father. We ask all these things through Your Son's name. Amen. Our theme this year is City Lights. And every day, we want to live for our Lord as His lights in our city. Every day, we want to walk in His steps as His disciples. We want to live lives that will reflect His life. And if we're going to reflect the life of Christ, it can be very helpful to study the Gospels. For the Gospels give us the story of Jesus and they tell us something about how He lived. Tonight we're going to be looking at one of the ideas, one of the themes that Luke brings out in his Gospel. Now we remember who Luke is. Luke is that doctor who accompanied the Apostle Paul on some of his missionary journeys or at least for part of some of those journeys. And he was there with Paul and on the front lines. He saw the message as Paul would deliver it. He saw what was needed to help people transformed to become disciples of Christ. He saw Gentiles who've been serving pagan gods who had ideas very foreign from Christ come close and begin to worship and serve the Creator and His Son. He saw the message that was needed to help this. And so when Luke sits down to write the story of Jesus, he is going to be selecting from all of the things that Jesus did to put down the story that's going to help his reader, a Gentile reader, understand what they need to know about Christ. Luke has sometimes been called a discipleship handbook because so much of the Gospel of Luke not only tells us about Christ, but it also shows us how to live as those who follow Him. And within this telling of the story of Jesus, we have the Scripture reading, Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 32, that Brad read for us just a moment ago. And in that Scripture reading, what we saw is that Jesus calls a tax collector. His name is Matthew, or, or Levi, and he's at his booth, he's working, and Jesus calls him to follow him. Well, Matthew is going to decide to throw a great banquet and invite the people that he knows. So he invites other tax collectors, and he also invites people who have lived solid lives. Apparently, sometime after the meal has ended, 
the Pharisees and the, the scribes who, who know what has transpired, they come to Jesus' disciples and they say, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? As Luke tells the story, the disciples never get the opportunity to answer the question. Um, Jesus will jump right into the discussion and he tells the Pharisees and the scribes why he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners. But it is a good question. Why are the disciples? Why are the disciples eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? That's a valid question. There's many theoretical possibilities why. I mean, just looking at the range of possibilities, there is the, well, Matthew's, he's a tax collector. He's going to be wealthy. Good food. <laughs> and another reason, well, I'm just tagging along with Jesus. And if Jesus goes there, then I'm going to follow and go with Jesus and be there. There's other reasons, too, why they would be engaged in eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. And later this evening, we're going to come back to this question, an unanswered question that's posed to the disciples. Why are you spending time with them? Although the disciples never answer the question, Jesus explains why he eats and drinks with the tax collectors and the sinners. And basically, he says, I'm here to offer a cure to those who are sick. The fact that Luke is choosing to include this story raises a question. Why? Why, Luke, are you telling us about this little detail about Jesus' life and where he's spending time and with whom he's spending time? And what we discover as we look at the whole Gospel of Luke is that this story is here for a very big reason. Luke wants us to know Jesus' lifestyle involved eating with sinners. This meal where Jesus eats with tax collectors and these sinners, is not an accidental fluke. Um, it's a deliberate characteristic of his lifestyle. Repeatedly, Luke tells us that Jesus spends time with people who have sullied and stained their lives by choosing to do things that they should not have done. And furthermore, Jesus has the reputation of hanging out with these type of people. When Jesus decides to quote the reputation that others have thrown on him. What does he say? Luke chapter 7, verse 34. This is what other people are saying about me. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunk, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's who Jesus is hanging out with. In contrast to the austere lifestyle of John the Baptist, Jesus socializes with people who are not serving God, people who are long from God, and everybody knows it. That's what Jesus does. Luke chapter 15 and verses 1 and 2, we have another story. And now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law were complaining this man welcomes sinners and, and eats with them. Now, if you notice, if you know this context here, this is not a meal context. On this occasion, Jesus is not eating with anybody, but rather he is standing there and some people have come around. A crowd is gathered 
And he's welcoming people and people who have reputations. But notice the complaint of the Pharisees. The Pharisees' complaint is this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. You see, this complaint is not merely about this one event of these people gathering around Jesus to listen to him, but they're complaining about an ongoing pattern in the life of this man called Christ, Jesus. Something that's characteristic of him. And now Luke wants us to know about this characteristic of his lifestyle. And it is this lifestyle that is causing some religious consternation by the Pharisees. Luke chapter 19, verses 5 and 7, we have the story that Cody referred to this morning, Zacchaeus, the tax collector who climbed up in the sycamore tree in order to be able to see Jesus as, as this crowd goes by. Well, we read beginning in verse 5, Jesus looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down quickly because I must stay. I must stay at your house today. And when the people saw it, they all complained. Here's all the, the good folk and they're surrounding Jesus and walking with him. And this tax collector has climbed up in this tree just to get a glimpse of Jesus as he goes by. I've heard about him. I want to see him. And tax collectors back then, not like tax collectors today. Back then, the way it worked is you paid Rome. Whoever could pay Rome the biggest fee got the job. And then they would turn around. And because they had the power and the authority, they could demand. And there wasn't something that was regulated. And the tax collectors abused people. And so, here in the story is Jesus saying to this man, I must eat at your house today. Now, it's been said that in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus either is going to a dinner, he's at a dinner, or he's coming home from a dinner. Well, that's a slight exaggeration, but not much. And we quickly discover Jesus not only eats with anybody, he, he's going to eat even with the Pharisees. And so in Luke chapter 7, verse 36, Jesus goes to eat with Simon the Pharisee. In Luke 9, verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 12, he feeds the multitude with five loaves and two fish, and, and he's presumably eating with anybody and everybody who happens to be there. In Luke chapter 11, verse 37, Jesus eats with another Pharisee. In Luke chapter 14, in verse 1, still another meal with a Pharisee. He's eating with people. He's socializing not only with these Pharisees, but also with the rest of society. And the reason for the Pharisees' complaint is that they viewed Jesus' social behavior as undermining a godly piety. The Jewish law commanded, you are to distinguish between the unclean and the clean. Leviticus 10.10 Now, within first century Judaism, this principle was also applied to people, causing the Jews to erect barriers between themselves and others. Jacob Neusner a, uh, a Jewish scholar has written that the Pharisees in particular had formed themselves into haberoth or fellowships, eating their meals together, observing, mute, uh, observing ritual purity regulations, 
setting themselves apart from other Jews. Apparently, mealtime came to signify something more than just a social event, but it was a time of fellowship where they would maintain purity and affirmed godliness with each other. So in practical terms, sinners were people to be kept at arm's length from such events. Don't taint yourselves by contacting what is impure. And so functionally, the the person who is living far from God fell into a list for them of unimportant people, outcasts, those who could be safely ignored without adversely impacting one's piety. And from a Pharisaic perspective, Jesus was blurring the lines between what is pure and what is not pure. And Jesus was corrupting pure living by his social habits and, and hanging out with people who were not walking close to God. And the Pharisees, they're shocked that even the disciples of Jesus have been pulled into this this habit. They've been influenced by this Jesus to do this. Why do you, and it's directed to the disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Well, we don't rise to regulating purity in this way. But might not sometimes our behavior have some functional semblance? I was raised in a Christian family. The blessing of being raised in a Christian family. And very early in my childhood, I had impressed upon me 1 Corinthians 15.33. Bad company corrupts good character. And like anyone else growing up, I encountered many different scenarios. And so I knew for my training what I was supposed to do. When the crowd starts going bad, you go the other way. And I would, because that is what you're supposed to do. And that was the first idea that popped into my head. But there's a problem that can arise It can be quite easy to just live at a superficial level among people, people who are living far from God, treating those people pleasantly but distantly. Has the following also been your experience? I have a friend. I have a friend, and I would say at least 75% of the time, well, I have the opportunity to, to stand and talk with him. He's going to talk about either the time he got drunk last or glorifying his incessant desire for exuberance in drinking. Now, that, that world is so far from me. I, I don't relate to that. And so, thoughts immediately go to like 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. What fellowship does light have with darkness? What does a believer share in common with an unbeliever? And these words underscore a truth and a general principle that there is a huge disparity between living for God and, and having one's life shaped by serving God and living however I want to live, doing whatever I feel like doing, whenever I feel like doing it. And forces such as these 
such as the companions corrupting and enlightened fellowship, uh, can quite naturally create what I call the Christian cocoon, where God's people huddle together in fellowship and don't have very much impact on the world around them. To quote Mark Middleberg, studies show that most Christians don't have very many, if any, friendships with non-Christians. And this chart represents the typical results from such studies. The longer a person serves God, the fewer non-Christian close friends they typically have. See, unless we live deliberately in a way against that, what tends to happen, the trend is that the longer a person is a Christian, they are going to identify and fellowship with people that are like-minded and these are their closest friends and that's wonderful and good. But at the same time, what tends to happen is they grow farther and farther away from people who have lifestyles that are so very different from their own and who are living far from serving God. Now, it would distort both us and the Pharisees to, to equate one with the other. But if we're honest, it would appear that we can also easily fall into isolating ourselves from people who are not trying to serve God, to hold people at arm's length. And it's responding to such protectionistic impulses that Jesus will counter by answering why. Why he ate and drank with sinners. Those who are well don't need a physician. But those who are sick do. I've not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And this is an answer explaining his mission and his method. It explains what Jesus is doing. If people have not yet chosen to serve God, then whether they realize it or not, they are spiritually sick. Jesus' goal involved encouraging people to repent that is, to change their lives and orient them toward God. He lived deliberately. And accordingly, Jesus' actions were to reorient people toward God. He tried to reorient lives toward God. He was not just entering into social events to have fun. He was not rubbing shoulders with others and was open to allowing their priorities and values to influence and change who he was. Rather, one of his methods for impacting others involved socializing with people, getting close to people to show that he cared about them. He cared about people and he wanted others to know who he really was. Because for people at a distance, you can paint a picture on them. But when people are up close, you get to see who they really are. And you can't disregard them with a stereotype. But if a Christian is someone out there, a distance away, well, it's easy to just put a, a label, a stamp that can disregard them. But if there are someone who is close to you, if Christ is close to you, you see how much he really does care for you. You see his life and, and it is going to have an impact because you cannot hold him at a distance. To isolate ourselves from those who are not Christ's disciples does not fit well with loving people as Jesus did. In, in Luke chapter 15, the first couple of verses, 
Jesus will delve deeper into why. Why He's doing what He's doing. He reveals what He knows. Jesus knows some things that are true, and that motivates why He does what He does. Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming to hear Him. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and, and eats with them. And Luke includes this teaching of Jesus so that if we have ears to hear, we can learn from the Master. So his first story. Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose, and he tells a second story. You know how often Jesus repeats a parable idea? Not something he does very often. But here he's going to tell three stories in succession because he really wants to get this idea across. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and, and loses one. Does she not light a lamp? Sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, these stories reveal that Jesus knew some truths. The first thing that they reveal is that that he knew is that people matter to God. Those who are lost warrant an all out search. You search for the sheep, you search for the coin because people matter to God. And when people finally decide to make the decision to turn to their Creator, that's a time for great rejoicing because people are valuable. But it also reveals that Jesus knew that people are spiritually lost. These are stories of lostness. It would be naive to uh, assume that everyone realizes their true spiritual condition. Oh, to be sure, there are some people who feel a weight of guilt. From the things they've done in their life, they feel this tremendous guilt. They feel so unworthy. They feel horrible about themselves. And that weight of guilt is just burdening and destroying them. And some people are aware of that. But there are others who may be good citizens or others who are, they don't see anything wrong with anything they're doing. And they feel perfectly fine without God. They might even feel that their relationship with God is great. But this does not change the reality that all of us have chosen at one time or another to sin. And we carry that problem. And it's because of that that God cannot accept any of us into His presence unless that sin problem is dealt with. Now, when we look at the horrific crimes and atrocities in human history. We can easily see how horrific sin is. And, and so maybe our minds go to extreme cases like what Hitler did. And we go, 
look at the brutality and the cruelness and we can say, yes, these things are horrible and I can see that so clearly. But an absolutely pure and holy God, when He looks at sin in everyone's life, He sees the terrific and horrific nature of all sin. Even what people call little white lies. And so it's because people are spiritually lost that people need to reorient their lives toward God. And this is another truth that Jesus knows. People need to reorient their lives toward God. And it's because of this that Jesus draws near to those who are spiritually lost. There's a disturbing quote again, this time from, uh, again from Mark Middleberg. He says that evangelism often fails to happen because in our innermost being, we don't really care much about people who are outside of God's family. I want to believe that Mark Middleberg is wrong. But that's his observation as he works with people who claim to follow Christ. But then Jesus is going to hone his answer in Luke chapter 15 about why he spent time with sinners. He's going to hone it to a razor's edge with his third story. And it's the story of the father with the two sons. And we know the story well. The prodigal son. There's one son who rebels, says, give me my inheritance, goes off, blows his life, makes every wrong decision you can possibly make, sinks down to the very bottom. When he hits absolute rock bottom, he finally kind of wakes up and goes, it's better back home. He turns around, heads home. The father runs out, embraces him, welcomes him home. There's forgiveness. And often when this parable is taught, the emphasis is put on the fact that God will welcome us no matter how far we've gone. But I'd like to suggest that in the context of what Jesus is doing, that's not his big point. God does welcome us. And that is encouraging and it warms our heart. Regardless of where we have been, God will welcome us back. But within the context, Jesus is working on something else. Remember, there's two sons. And the father's behavior is motivated by what he valued. He loves both of his sons. And when he sees the son who's rebelled come back, he says, for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. That's how he describes his love and his joy over the son that's come back. You see, Jesus knows people matter to God. And so he tells three stories to lay this truth. But where we really get with this story is those that are standing in the crowd, those Pharisees and scribes who have criticized Jesus for spending time with sinners. And now Jesus brings the story close to home to that mentality. And he says, let me tell you about the older son. There was a, the older son, he's out in the field. And it's what happens with the second son that we discover how Jesus wants these parables and his lifestyle of welcoming people who are far from God to impact us. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, 
Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Was this older brother so vastly different from the younger? Well, at first look, we say, yes, the younger brother, he, he's the rebel. He's the one who goes out and blows his life. And that's so very different from the older brother. But these brothers are so very alike. Because both of them have heart problems. This story is about two brothers with heart problems. One discovers he has a heart problem and realizes it. And he repents of that and comes home. The other one doesn't even recognize he has a heart problem. He's going to stay out there in the field. And I, how dare you, Dad, that you welcome back this son who's treated you so disrespectfully and has foolishly blown all that you gave him. And just as the, in the story how the father goes out to that son to win him back, so too Jesus is telling this parable to win those who are listening who would look down on Him for spending time with people who are far from God. The fact that Jesus is going to tell three parables shows that Jesus wants those who keep their distance from people with sullied lives to be transformed. He wants disciples to have transformed hearts that are going to be like His, like God's, that they will walk in His footsteps. Your eyes have never locked eyes with another human being whom God does not love. It does not matter what they have done, what clothes they're wearing, what type of job they have. And it's because God does not have a list of unimportant people that can be safely ignored and relegated to the side that Jesus is going to spend time with people who are far from God. And there's a reason why Luke is going to emphasize over and over how the Messiah lived. Luke not only tells us about Jesus, but how to walk in his steps as a disciple. It's a handbook for those with ears to hear that they might have a, a godly concern and a love for everyone that their eyes falls upon. Just as God loves all people. And to put that in practical terms, that means specific daily little things, decisions on being close to people. Well, Jesus had success. Remember the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Lord, look, half of my possessions I now give to the poor. And if I have cheated anyone of anything, I am paying back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this household because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Pharisees asked the disciples, Why do you spend time eating and drinking with sinners? What does someone were to ask us? Why does MacArthur Park, why do the members of MacArthur Park Spend time, not just with themselves, 
but with people. All types of people. Because we want to be lights. We want to be God's city lights. We want to be a salt. Because we love people. We're trying to love people the way God loves people. Because people matter. They're valuable. Because people are lost. Because people need to reorient their lives to their Creator. God loves. God loves people. I'm glad that I can be here tonight and to worship with you. To sing songs of praise and to remember our God and what He has done. And to look at a little bit of, of God's Word and to encourage us to walk in the steps where Jesus walked, as He walked, that God might use us, that His will might be done through our lives. It might be this evening that someone has been thinking about serving Christ, but they haven't yet responded to the Gospel as it's described within Scripture. That we need to understand that Jesus, He died for us. He was raised again. That we need to rely on this One who died for us by by being buried with Him. Acknowledging that He is the Son of God who died for us. And God raises us up out of baptism, out of that burial, to a new life. To one that He empowers. To one that He creates new and holy. If there's any way that we can be of assistance, why not come this evening while we stand and sing?